0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this first Sunday of Advent and we thank you for the readings that we've heard this morning. And I pray that you would help us even now to be attentive, to notice to be ready, to listen, to be prepared, to wait. And so I pray that you would come upon us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is the first Sunday of a new liturgical year. It's it's the church's New Year's Day. And for those who may not be familiar with the different seasons of the church calendar, let me give you a very brief reminder by way of introduction. The church year, going back to the first few centuries of the church's existence, follows a sequence that begins on this Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent, that tells the great salvation story of God for the world. And so Advent is where we begin. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a strange place where we begin, because we begin by looking to the end. Advent, as I mentioned earlier, and as somebody rightly pointed out from the congregation, literally means coming. And it refers to the coming of Jesus. And in the four weeks, although it's, it's really only three weeks with so four Sundays this year, um, as we look forward to celebrating Christ's birth, But you will see in the readings over the next couple of weeks that the season of Advent very much looks forward to when Jesus will come again. I didn't grow up in a tradition that followed the church calendar, but I am grateful that in my twenties, I came to experience these ancient rhythms of the Christian year. And As we take time to remember um, that Christ's first coming was foretold hundreds of years before his birth and we hear these ancient scriptures, may we once again enter in to God's story, the story, his story, his his history of his salvation and begin to understand our own stories in the context of this overarching story. Interestingly, we don't start the church's new year uh, with huge celebration and fireworks. We start with yearning and longing and crying out to God to help us. As uh, Erica read, Isaiah 64 verse 1, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Perhaps you've cried something similar. When you look at the news and you see the images of devastation and human suffering in war-torn Israel and Gaza or in Ukraine and in so many places, oh that you would tear open the heavens and come down, oh God, do something. Isn't that a prayer that we've all cried at some point in our lives? Perhaps on the way to the hospital, full of fear. Perhaps when in a loveless relationship. Perhaps on the streets of a a riot-torn town, fearful for your life. Perhaps from one who feels falsely accused and unfairly tried in the courts of social media. Perhaps from the lips of mothers and fathers who believe that there's no justice for their children because of the color of their skin. In all these examples and in 10,000 more, the cry of aching hearts goes up, oh God, oh that you would tear open the heavens and come down, oh God, that you would do something. I'm very glad that the Bible gives us these gut-wrenching cries these cries of longing. It gives me comfort to know that it's not unfaithful to lament. It's okay to cry out to God in times of crisis or despair. Indeed, it's more than okay. It's a really good thing for us to do. Much better, I might add, than some of the alternatives which include our readiness to be quick to judge and slow to listen, all too often playing the whole thing out for the world to see via social media. Once again, dear friends, as I have said from this pulpit before, I urge you to exercise restraint in what you share on social media. Cry out to God. Lament is good. Blaming, judging, presuming to know all the answers. Those things are bad. So one good thing to do in Advent then is to lament. Advent is also a time and an invitation to wait. An invitation to wait on God. Most people don't like waiting um, and are not terribly good at it. We we want faster internet, shorter lines at the grocery store, traffic that doesn't get gridlocked, and we want it all when we want it now. And in the less trivial things that assail us, our hearts are filled with longing for things to be better, things to be right. We long for justice and for healing, for redemption, for hope. An Advent comes along at the start of this liturgical year and says, wait. Wait for God. And that can just be so frustrating. As we think about what this means and what God may be calling us to this Advent, I think it's important to note that The waiting that God calls us to is not a passive waiting of despair, though there is space to lament, I get that, but it's an acting weight, an active waiting of hopefulness. So if you like, the other side of the lament is the hope. One spiritual director wrote this, waiting is one of God's immensely sweeping invitations. To wait expectantly and with open hands requires a relinquishment of control that gets at the roots of our motivations, fears, and idols. It is where we learn that God isn't a genie and happiness is not a matter of God meeting our expectations. While we wait... We sense the naked vulnerability of trust. No matter how disciplined, organized and prayerful we get, we never outgrow God's invitation to wait. The learning curve is lifelong End quote. In our Old Testament reading, alongside the prophet Isaiah's lament, "Oh, that you would tear open the heavens," he remembers and declares an important truth that he's seen fulfilled time and time again. Verse 4, from ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Did you notice that? God works for those who wait for him. I wonder, what are you waiting for? And how's it going? I think the one thing that makes waiting bearable is hope. The pregnant woman, the child before Christmas, the person waiting for his or her test result are kept going because they hope that all will be well. Now our hope as Christians is not that. It's not a hope based on wishful thinking or the law of averages or a desired favorable outcome, our hope is based on all that we know and experience of God's working in our world and in our lives. In all our waiting, we are wise to remember what God has already done. Advent waiting, godly waiting, fruitful waiting has got a lot to do with paying attention. Paying attention to God and paying attention to the world around us. And it's this paying attention that provides fertile soil for God to transform our hearts and minds. Perhaps this Advent, you will make renewed time each day to wait on the Lord. Now, I'll be honest, after I've been ordained for 31 years and and this is still a challenge for me. One way that I've found helps me intentionally adopt a posture of attentive waiting and listening is to light a candle. And sometimes I'll set a timer on my phone just for a few minutes and then put it aside and then wait silently before God. I also find waiting silently in the presence of others can be helpful, like some of us did yesterday morning at Soul Care. Actually, Andrea and I were driving down the hill this morning from where we live, and Andrea said, yes, well, let's just maybe just be in silence. We're in Advent. And, you know, we got all the way to the bottom of the hill before before I started talking, but, you know. (laughs) But we can wait attentively as we go about our days, as we walk, or drive as we take notice of what we see? Well, Jesus talks about paying attention in our gospel reading. From the fig tree learn its lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near and the he is a reference to Jesus, the son of man. And these verses from our gospel reading are part of a bigger picture about things that were to happen in the future, interwoven in this chapter. We didn't read it all, but there are two events. One is the fall of Jerusalem, which is an event in history that has happened. It happened in AD 70, um, and that's just a historical fact. But the other thing that's being referenced in this chapter, and if you wanna read the whole thing when you get home, that would be a good thing to do, but the other concerns the day and time when Jesus will return, a future date in history the date of which nobody knows. And this double perspective with part of Jesus' words having been fulfilled and part yet to be fulfilled may help us understand that tricky verse, if you noticed it in verse 30, which says, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And yet the people to whom Jesus was speaking clearly did pass away uh, before everything was fulfilled. They, they They did see the destruction of the temple, but they didn't see Christ coming again. And all kinds of stuff has been written on that. But I think the best way, most helpful way for us to understand this and realize that the Bible's not being contradictory here is to see that there's a double fulfillment going on. Part has been fulfilled then, part is to be fulfilled in the future. One thing, however, is clear. Nothing, I believe, now stands between Christ's finished work on the cross, his resurrection and ascension on the one hand, and his coming again in glory on the other. The second coming of Jesus is always near, it is soon. And that perspective is key to informing how we live now in this in-between time, the time between when Christ came which we celebrate at Christmas, and the time when he will come again. When we wait intentionally, attentively, and actively, then we are more likely to notice what's going on around us. Now, we don't have too many fig trees to get our cues from in Pittsburgh, but across the world, we see so much evil, hatred, violence, abuse, and calamity. Indeed, there's so much of it racing across our screens that we can become inoculated against it, immune from its horrors. What can we learn from all that's going on? And at one level, we could say, well, not so much. It's just evidence of a fallen world in which we live, and there's not much that we can do about it anyway. But I don't think that's good enough. Now, of course, we can't fix the problem of evil in the world, and thank God we don't have to. God has done something about evil, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But because we are still waiting for his return, we are not to be complacent. We're not to fall asleep. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable from our Gospel reading. It is precisely because we don't know when Jesus is coming again that we are to heed his words, beware, keep alert. When Jesus comes again, how will he find you? Asleep? Oblivious to the cries for justice? Or will he find us as faithful servants, doing what the prophet Micah Uh, said we're to do the words from the Lord, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. And over the centuries, it has been Christians who have not only Christians, but it has definitely been Christians who've been in the forefront of working against slavery and poverty and all manner of injustices. And that's our responsibility today also. May we continue to be such people, people who care about and work for justice, people who speak out against the ways the poor, the weak, and the downtrodden are ignored or taken advantage of. And may we be among those who work for the good and well-being of others. When we see things that are wrong in the world, I want to add this, we need to be so very careful when we point the finger of blame at others. Because we all, always must be willing to face the truth about ourselves. Our lives that are drawn towards sin have this natural propensity to live in rebellion, to mess things up. You know, it can be tempting to hear or read these opening words of lament from Isaiah, and think of all the ways we want to cry out to God to tear uh, open the heavens and come down and sort out all the wickedness in other people and yet fail to examine our own hearts. But you know, Isaiah doesn't let us do that. Note what the prophet doesn't say. He doesn't say, But you were angry as our enemies sinned, you were angry because Hamas brutally attacked Israel. You were angry because thousands of children are maimed, orphaned, and killed in Gaza. Now, I'm sure that God is angry because of these things. And just a few hours ago, the fighting has continued in the Middle East. And we want to and probably should cry out, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence to make your name known to your adversaries. But look at what it says in verse 5. Look at it. Page 6 in your bulletin. Look at what verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 64 says. But you were angry and what? Who sinned? Say it again. Who sinned? We sinned. And then in the next verse, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. You know, we're okay with the idea of God being angry with them. We don't like the idea of God being angry with us. But he is God, not Santa Claus. And when God is angry with us, the best thing we can do is get over ourselves and reach the end of ourselves so that we may return to him, realizing that all our excuses and even all our best efforts are not enough. Oh, how we need our Heavenly Father's love. We need God to be for us and to do for us what only he can be and do. And that is what the prophet spells out for us in verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And the clay doesn't get to call the shots or decide the time and place and piece of pottery it wants to be. The clay must wait on the potter. And it's this waiting that so often reveals what's really in our hearts. It exposes what happens when our expectations go unmet. And as I reflect on this in my own life, and and those times when I've had to wait, specifically during the 10 years during which my first marriage unraveled, each day, each week, each month, Each year seemed like an eternity of waiting. But here's what I found. The waiting did something. It exposed my lack of trust, my fears, and all that goes with not being in control and no longer having the ability to fix things. And that experience, ironically, at least in part, turned out to be a good thing. Much was not good, but there's some good. Even life transforming because of what it did to my relationship with God. And I I think to my relationship with other people. God reshaped and molded my heart in the crucible of suffering. He was the potter, I was the clay. And so today, right here, right now, God could tear open the heavens and come down, he could. But he doesn't, or at least he hasn't, at least not yet. And in the midst of great calamity, the psalmist cries out, and we read it earlier, Restore us, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. And yet God doesn't do that in the the ways that we want sometimes. And as I said earlier, we live in this tension between the now and the not yet, between what has happened and what is to come. God has come in history in Jesus and he is today even now even in the midst of the suffering he is making all things new but he has not yet returned to bring to final consummation the finished work he did on the cross. God could fix all our problems he could answer us at once and then we wouldn't have to wait So, why doesn't he? I wonder, could it be at least in part because the growth and formation of our characters is more important to God than we perhaps realize? Author Adele Calhoun writes, one of the main reasons God doesn't always answer us immediately is that waiting is God's crucible of transformation. Waiting is how God gets at the idols of our hearts. It creates space to learn more about who God is, to receive his purposes into our lives, to move past our resistance and say our deepest yes to him. And there's another reason God has us wait, which we're actually going to see in next week's Uh, reading so you'll have to come back Um, but the sneak preview this morning from 2 Peter 3 is simply this the Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness but is patient with you not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance I believe this is why Jesus has not yet returned It's because he is patient. He does not want any to perish. Rather, he wants all to come to repentance. So this Advent, I pray that we may wait and watch and work with purpose. That our hope in him will hold us close as we wait that we may all experience the place of waiting and listening and watching and keeping awake as the very place where we discover God at work in us, helping us to trust, making us more like Jesus and drawing others to Christ. Let us enter this new year of God's grace and mercy, remembering and trusting that he is our father, we are the clay, and he is the potter, we are the work of his hand. And finally, in these days, cling on for dear life to the truth that God works for those who wait for him. Amen.